Welcome to The Mystic and the Skeptic, the show that asks the tough questions and explores different alternatives to today's pressing issues, theories, or enigmas. Join us in an exploration of the mystic-skeptic mind space. We're very lucky to have as our guest Mr. Patrick Gabriel Lombroso, who was born in Paris, France, a descendant of long time of the Lombroso family, who is connected to the Carvajals from Monterrey, my hometown. And um, his family has an extensive Jewish history. We're going to let him share a little bit about his background. And, and again, we're honored to have him as here we're discussing crypto-Jewish issues. So if you can tell us a little bit about uh, how you ended up in Oregon and, and what has it been like being part of the Lombroso family? Well, this is a very <laughs> long-handed question. <laughs> but uh, I arrived in... Uh, Oregon in 1995 uh, with my wife, who is a Portland-born Oregonian. She was born in Portland. Yeah, Portland-born Oregonian. And uh, so, um, yeah, that's how I'm, I, I came here. Now, uh, before that, I had traveled extensively in Southeast Asia and the Middle East, Eastern and Western Europe, it's been quite a journey. And, but, um, so uh, I don't know much about the community of uh, Sephardic Jews of Libya. So if you can tell us uh, what was the environment like when you were born and did you migrate to Israel? Like a lot of, um, Mm -hmm. you know, people think that um, there's only Middle Eastern Jews or European Jews or Sephardic Jews, but, North African Jews, uh, we don't know much about. So can you tell us a little bit about how did the Lombrosos end up there? 
Actually, you're right. When I came to America, many people tell me, oh, the Jews, they do this and the Jews, they do that. And say, well, well I don't know. I never heard about it. That's because most people here in America associate Jews with Ashkenazi Jews. So, but my family, we come from Tunisia. My father was born in Tunisia. My, his parents were born in Tunisia. And uh, at home, um, if French was not spoken, it was either Arabic and even sometimes Italian. And in, in France, most of the Jews actually are from Asfaradim, from Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco. Uh, so it's, very, it's quite different, actually. It's a different culture. And, um, yeah, and the story is quite, um, the story is, um, is quite extensive. Uh, Tunisian Jews are mixed with France because Tunisia was some sort of protectorate, but it's also mixed with Italy, connections with Italy. And, uh, um, yeah, my great, great grandfather, Isaac Lombroso, Yitzchak Lombroso, still has his tomb. His tomb is still visited in, uh, in Tunis. He was Grand Chief Rabbi of Tunis. Well, but uh, what is the connection from the, this Rabbi of Tunis to uh, Joseph Lombroso, who mm -hmm. we know from uh, the history of Monterrey that he was uh, Luis de Carvajal El Mozo, uh, yes. that he made it from Portugal. He, he was persecuted and burned at the stake. Uh, but some of his relatives went back to Spain, correct? His nephew. Actually, he had two nephews, uh, from what I can, from what I figured out. He has two nephews. Um, one of them, one went to Greece and established a, to Thessaloniki in Greece, actually. And he established a community there, and there is still today a uh, big Jewish community, Sephardi Jews in, um, in Thessaloniki. And the other went to Italy. And this Joseph Lombroso went to Italy. I think there was something between Livorno and Venezia, Livorno and Venezia. And there he became a great rabbi. And that's where the descendants came through from, uh, Venice, from uh, Joseph Lombroso to further down, further down. And my family, the Lombrosos, uh, actually have a picture of my grandfather in an Italian uh, army fatigues because he, was, uh, he did his service for Italy because Italy was involved with Tunisia. So, wow. and, and what people don't know is that there was different waves of anti-Semitism in different parts of, of Europe and North Africa and the Middle East. So uh, as the... The, the Catholic persecution was ending, then the, there was Muslim uh, persecution, and then back and forth. So, um, mm -hmm. so they were able to flee Catholic persecution in Mexico, ended up in Italy. They went to Europe. And mm -hmm. then came down to Africa where there was no persecution anymore, uh, as it used to be with the Almohads, correct? Yes, at that time. At that time, it, it, it was going not, not too bad. It changed uh, with um, World War Two, and after the after that, with the new president of uh, his name was Bourguiba, or president of Tunisia. But before that, 
uh, things were better in Tunisia. So uh, many people left from went from Italy to Tunisia. There was a, a to be honest, I don't exactly uh, remember what was the if uh, if uh, it, uh, Tunisia was a protectorate or. Uh, actually a colony of Italy. There was some sort of connection. Like my grandfather, who was born in, in Tunisia, made his military service with Italy. So, uh, and the, yeah, so i still figuring it all out. Well, and then the interesting thing about, um, you mentioned in one of the videos you have on YouTube that a lot of the anti-Semitism nowadays, after World War II, uh, in the Middle East or in, in the North Africa in that area comes from uh, Christian sources or at least yes, actually, the Western world bringing in that into the Middle East? Yes, actually, for me, uh, I don't call uh, all form of anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism. Uh, the way I look at it is that the Arab world has a beef with the Jewish world. Uh, and that, that, that problem goes back to Abraham, to, to Ishmael and Isaac, to Jacob and Esau. Uh, in, in history, we know that Abraham divided the land, his possessions, between his descendants. He gave what was then called Canaan to Isaac, Mount Seir, which would be the area of Jordan, to Ishmael, who later intermarried with the tribes of Esau and formed the Arab world. And he gave Saudi Arabia to the six children he had with Keturah, which we can read in Genesis 25. So the inheritance was well divided, but somehow brothers always want what the favorite of the father has. And in this case, it was uh, everybody wanted what Isaac, Isaac had because Isaac was the covenant descendant, the one who carried the, the line. So, but there is problems. In, in, even in the story, we can see Jacob and Esau, the whole story of the, of the lentils and the deception and all that stuff. To me, what I see, between, what I see is happening between Jews and Arabs today is actually sibling rivalry people fighting for daddy, daddy Abraham's inheritance. They have a beef. It's family feud, basically. Now, that for me is not really anti-Semitism. It's uh, just a family feud. Now, what happened in Europe, the European had no beef with Jacob. They had no problem, issues. It's, it's totally unwarranted uncalled for, they just don't like us because we are Jews. And that's it. There is no reason. We have no inheritance problem. We have no issues together. So that is actually pure anti-Semitism. And what is amazing is that if you look at, for example, Palestinian newspaper cartoons, if you look at um, uh, the propaganda, the anti-Israel propaganda in the Arab world, you can, you can compare it very easily with European anti-Semitic propaganda. For example, there is a movie called uh, uh, Horseman 
without a head, something like that. It was produced in Saudi Arabia, I think, or Iraq. Um, and it, it talks about the blood libels. Now, the blood libels are something that concerns Catholic. What do Arabs have to care about Jews making matzah, uh, making matzah with the blood of a Catholic boy? It's, it's like, uh, also the, the, the Arab world brings on the protocols of Zion, which were all written in Europe, in England, actually. So basically, to the rhetoric, the rhetoric comes from Europe. And that is what is surprising. That is what is surprising. Well, to connect it to the crypto-Jewish experience, um, the reason I asked is because whenever Jews thought that they were safe, either by converting or by moving to a different part of the world, the new waves of uh, pogroms or anti-Semitism or anti-Judaism came about. So um, did your family emigrate to Israel when uh, the state of Israel was founded and there was um, it's, people in North Africa are, are not Arabs. I know there's some mm -hmm. Arabs there, but North Africans yes. started attacking um, the native Jewish communities because they felt threatened by the state of Israel. Did that happen to your family? Well, what happened mostly to my family was World War II. World War II, uh, Tunis had a big Jewish community and uh, it was living side, side by side with the, with the Tunisian uh, people. A lot of that community also came from Italy and, uh, and uh, one of my uncle actually went to Israel. He was there even before Israel was a country. And he's, he lives in Yafo. But what happened with the rest of my family is that um, the Germans came to Tunisia, to North Africa, and they wanted to do there what they were doing in Europe. They wanted to afflict the Jewish North African communities in the same way that they were afflicting Uh, the Jewish communities in Europe. So, but the problem was, is that there was already the Americans and the British in North Africa at that time. So, but what they did, they, 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 they how do you say in English? Uh, they requisited, they took over all the household of the Jewish quarter. They gave everybody 24 hours to leave. They gave everybody 24 hours to leave and everybody had to go with whatever they could take in 24 hours. And uh, so they went wherever they could. And uh, one, of my, uh, one of my uncles or aunts, actually aunts, owned an apartment in Paris. And um, my family used it as a landing ground for each family to come in, stay there, get settled. Then the next family would come in. But some of my relatives, Actually, one of my uncle left and went to Israel instead. It's funny, when I was young, when I was younger, um, let's say I had uh, 15% of my family in Israel, 5% in Tunisia, and 80% in France. Now, I have 80% of my family in Israel, 15% in France, and 5% in Tunisia. So, but so you landed in, in Paris, and how did um, you connect with America, uh, or did you pass through Israel on, on your way here? Uh, well, I was born in Paris, uh, 
And uh, I started my religious education going to Talmud Torah, Sfaradi Talmud Torah, in, uh, in Paris itself. I prepared for my bar mitzvah there, learned my Hebrew and learned the prayers and uh, learned Jewish history. And uh, I spent m- much of my youth with Zionist movements, whereas all my school friends um, used to go to sports events or hang around with their other young, young friends. Me, I was part of uh, Zionist groups. That's where I spent all my free time. Uh, I used to, we, used, we learned about Israel's history. We learned our Hebrew. We learned Israeli dancing. We had camps. Every time there was school holidays, we had camps where, where we were together. Uh, it was very nice. But the, the theology now, the philosophy of the groups was Zionism, that the idea that Jews needed to go to Israel. So me, when I was 14, I told my parents I wanted to go. So they sent me to Israel, and I did my bar mitzvah uh, at the wedding hall. And uh, they, they were hoping that that would, uh, that would kind of satisfy my curiosity because they were not too keen on me living in it. I mean, it was like 19, the early 70s, the early 1970s, and Israel was quite unstable. So they were kind of afraid. Many Jewish families were afraid, and they still are afraid to send their children to Israel. So they tried to satisfy my curiosity by sending me on a holiday. And I came back, I wanted to go all the more. So the next year, I actually emigrated on a, with a one-way ticket. I remember it was funny, because I, I go at the airport, and uh, in the summer, many volunteers, Jewish volunteers, come and help uh, process the flow of of travelers from Paris to Israel because France is not like America. People take take their holidays mostly between July and August. So there is a lot, a lot of people going. So the Jewish Federation asks for volunteers to come and check tickets and everything. And when I get my ticket checked, who is checking it? One of my madrichim, one of my leaders from my Zionist movement. And he says, oh, you're going to Israel. Nice, nice, nice. He looks at my ticket and says, this is a one-way ticket. I say, yes, it's a one-way ticket. He says, are you sure you want to do this? Are you going with your parents? I say, no, I'm not going with my parents. This is my grandmother. She's going for holiday and she's going back. I'm going to school in September in Ashkelon. He says, oh, boy, are you sure you want to do that? I said, come on, isn't that what you're teaching us all the time? So, And... Uh, my parents' fear came through, came true because I, uh, I, went to, I arrived in Israel in July 73, mid-July 73, and spent time in holiday visiting my family. In September, I entered uh, a school, a special school for Olim Hadashim, new immigrants, near Ashkelon. And um, we were young people there from all around the world, speaking all sorts of languages and all learning Hebrew. It was a special school for that. And uh, in September, uh, in October, the Yom Kippur War started. So that was quite an experience to be there during the war. So, but we're all okay. And, and were, uh, my were parents you, were worried. Of, were you enlisted in the army at that time or, or did they live no, I was in school, so I was I was not I was not of age, but uh, 
I remember the soldiers coming to our school because we were very, if, if anybody knows, uh, who's listening knows um, Israel geography, uh, our school was in, it's called Nitzanim, and it's exactly between Ashdod and Ashkelon. Ashkelon is near the Gaza Strip, and uh, the school, actually, Nitzanim, was part of the Ashkelon, is still part of the Ashkelon district. Actually, uh, I looked, I was looking for the place on, on the internet, and now it is uh, actually the compound where um, uh, Gaza refugees, you know, like a few years ago, uh, Gaza was evacuated. So many Gaza evacuees, the, the, this place is used to, to take care of the Gaza evacuees. Many of them live there. So, so, uh, so, so I was young, but the military came there to, to teach some of us uh, what to do in case of problems, where to go, how to act. And the people who were, who were of age, they were teaching them to, to use, um, to use uh, rifles and, and to be able to do that. Actually, the school had a military, uh, had a Navy Academy on its ground, so it would have been a target. Wow. And for people who are not familiar, uh, there was ultra-Orthodox Jews who lived in Gaza. They had um, settlements there, and they were evacuated, and the, all of Gaza was given to the Arab population, and that was a very controversial thing that happened. Um, was it like 10, 15 years ago? Uh, maybe 20 years. Oh, it was actually not so long, or maybe I don't realize how time passed. Maybe since, but I think it was 2003 or something like that. Um, and um, yeah, three to five years. So, if you can uh, tell us, uh, then uh, there's a unique experience that, that you have gone through. Uh, a lot of us, when when we find out about our Jewish heritage, we get shunned by our families because they they are um, within a different worldview. And they feel that Judaism is inadequate or not uh, appropriate for people to be part of. And uh, again, it goes back to anti-Semitism, where people assume that Judaism is a dead religion, that Judaism has nothing for for people for the afterlife, that that the God of, of Israel has moved on from from Jewish um, the Jewish experience. You had the the opposite when it came down to uh, your your faith and your and your theological understanding so um after having getting a jewish education after migrating to israel how did you um how did your spirituality develop and and where did you end up yeah for for me um judaism um i know how people especially i guess christians I know what they think about Judaism. They think about it as a religion of law and legalism and what they call works. It's all in Christian words. And as a Jew, I, I never felt that way. Never. Uh, in, during my childhood in France, um, during my childhood in France, uh, France is, is uh, Catholic, but not very religious, very secular like they call it but the the culture is still catholic and um to me i looked at my peers the children my age especially when i was 11 years old and i started to get involved with the learning about judaism 
I, I, felt, I felt sorry for them. Because for me, the way I looked at Judaism, uh, my religion, I looked at it as uh, I had a God. I have a God who cares for me. He cares about what I eat. He cares about how I live. I have some sort of interaction with him through, through the, the words, through the commandments, through the prayers. And um, I never felt like a, the Shabbat or thing like this or not eating certain things were a, const, a constraint. But actually, they were the loving laws from the loving fathers. And I felt like the other people, my peers, they were more like orphans who had parents who were absent or didn't care for them. My God, he cared about me. And I thought I was very proud of, uh, of, uh, of who I was, not, not proud in a bad way, but I was very yeah, proud of who I was and, and what I had. And Judaism has always been, has always been that for me. Uh, I know that, uh, uh, like, for example, uh, like many Christians, they th- think about it as a, something about works and legalism. But I look at the simple law of Shabbat. The law of Shabbat is a law that tells you you've got to stop your work and take some time to reconnect with God, reconnect with your family, and reconnect, reconnect with God through reconnecting with your family and reconnecting with your friends and just taking time to pray and things like that. So, but the thing is, is that I don't get to do that because I'm finished with my work. I get to do that whether I'm finished with my work or not. Just because because God said I need to do it. He's not a boss who's telling me, you get your day off if you finish your assignments. No. I get my time with him whether I'm done or not. And I don't know a single person really who can tell me that on Friday night they're done with everything they have to do. You know, so for me, it's always been something about love, about care, about justice, about, uh, yeah, about just and about mercy. Because even if I'm not finished with my deal, people talk about the Jubilee, for example. The Jubilee is a, is a, that we find in the Torah is about people being uh, forgiven their debt, even if, even if they have not finish paying it. I mean, this is even financially irresponsible to do that. But that's what Judaism is about. You know, so so for me, it's a, it's been quite a walk. It's been quite a walk. Uh, I don't know what else you want to know. Uh, well, but, uh, uh, the reason I bring it up is because, um, you know, there's a lot of YouTube videos that are very upsetting. There's YouTube videos that hate on the Jews. There's YouTube videos that um, are either anti-missionary or um, very agenda-driven. And then there's YouTube videos where you have a Jewish person tell you how they had a horrible time being Jews. And then they met some Christians. They learned about Jesus. And now all the problems are gone. And now they're happy. And, and they want nothing to do with yeah. Judaism. And to, yeah. to have learned 
uh, about you having a positive experience with Judaism and then uh, joining the, the, peop- the followers of Jesus as, as, as a modern Jew with a Jewish education who has a positive view about Judaism that's unheard of. So uh, how have you well, used it, both, both uh, perspectives? It's, 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 it's a bit like that, you know. What, do we, what does one search with their religion? What does one search for? Um, uh, just a minute here. It's here. What, uh, you know, if the goal of religion is to make us happy and fulfilled, well, we don't really need religion for that. You can take some medicine, smoke something, and you feel happy and fulfilled. You don't have to deal with your problems and blah, blah, blah. You know, many people, I've traveled around the world. I've lived in Muslim countries, in Buddhist countries, in, uh, in India with Hindus. I've spoken with Taoist masters. Uh, and all religions really offer the nirvana. They all offer heaven. They all offer happiness. They all offer that in, according to their own term. Judaism also offers peace of mind. Christianity offers peace of mind. That's kind of a, but for me to offer that is a little bit like a advertisement. Eat this and you'll be healthy. You know, drink this, you'll be young again. Use this makeup and your wrinkles will disappear. You know, to, to advertise a product by telling people they'll get what they want. But that, that, that's about advertisement. That's tricking people. That, that's not true. I don't think that the goal of religion, at least of Judaism, is to make us happy. It never said that. I don't think one can find where in the Torah it says, uh, if you follow my Torah, you will be forever happy and satisfied. It doesn't say that. And, uh, and, and so when people teach that, I think it's a lie. It's a false expectation. To me, the goal of, if there is any happiness, peace of mind with the Torah, it's not about uh, that flippant, I'm happy today because blah, blah, blah. It's, it's an internal peace, something that's internal that exists, whether that exists within me, whether I'm rich or poor, whether I'm healthy or sick, whether I'm in jail or outside, whether it, it's something very internal. And what it is, it's the knowledge that I'm part of an inheritance and then inheritance is the world to come. Mm-hmm. I'm part of building a better world uh, for the future. It's a little bit like soldiers. Soldiers in America, they go and fight for the American dreams, but they themselves do not live it. They live in barracks and take orders from people. You know, And so to me, that's what I feel. I feel Judaism... And actually, yeah, Judaism is not about this world today. It's not about for now. It's, it's the hope 
for something future. And I feel honored to be part of it, to be honest. I don't know if that explains really well what I'm trying to say. That's very good stuff. Um, Tell us about what made you reconnect or be interested in reaching out to crypto Jews. Uh, one, One of the issues that we have is that not only the mainstream Jewish community, but even the so-called French groups or groups on the outskirts, Jewish Christians or self-proclaimed um, Jewish groups, they have a lot of issues with accepting Latinos as Jews. And we don't know if it comes from um, Amer- Mexican-American war. We don't know if it comes from stereotypes about Latinos taking over or, or stealing resources. But uh, to have someone who's Jewish uh, have love and support for the, the Latino crypto Jews or Banana Seam, that's also very refreshing because we get a lot of lack of interest, even like they just don't care or even believe our our, our premise or our claim to, to be members of the Jewish people. But to me, I think it's a very sad situation. But... Uh... But I'll be honest with you, this is something that I've, uh, I've sorry, I've, I've, I've looked at and seen in the recent years uh, because, and, and, and in America, because in France or in Israel, uh, I see Jews from all over the place. Like, for example, in Israel, they, whoever comes to live there has had to, uh, the right of return uh, is into the hands of Hasidic um, Ashkenazi Jews. And uh, they define themselves who's a Jew, who is not. They make the rules. Sometimes I think who are they to make the rules? But this is what we have to deal with. So that is, but if they can see, according to the rules in Israel, if they can see that you have uh, at least a Jewish parents, then it's being taken into consideration. Mostly mother at this point. I think the law is being revised because it became mother because it was easier to prove who is your mother than who is your father. But now with DNA, things might change. You know, I don't know about that. I heard that there were some changes about that. Now, but if, for example, somebody says, my grandmother was Jewish, then they still ask that those people go through a, a legal conversion. So that's, that's in Israel. To be honest, I understand it a little bit in Israel because Israel is a prosperous country, but it's a small country. And... Whereas there are many legitimate Jews who are not given a uh, uh, right of return and should, there are so many people who try to use, to try to lie and say, I'm Jewish, I'm Jewish. And they go from poor country to Israel. So they have to be careful. So, but the idea that Latino, Sephardi Jews not being accepted, I don't know. I, I haven't seen that in France. Uh, I haven't seen that in France, actually. Um, I've had experience that it was a lot uh, more relaxed because, again, the Judaism is much more Sephardi Jew in France than Ashkenazi Jews. You know, now, in America, uh, the Ashkenazis are more in charge because the Ashkenazis were the first ones to 
come to, to uh, the first Jews to come to, to America. And I'm painting with a white paintbrush. paintbrush. And uh, to the point that when Middle Eastern Jews or, or uh, Sephardi Jews came to America and they looked at, uh, you got to realize his story is funny. He, you know, Israel was in diaspora. And two communities grow, the Ashkenazis in Europe, Northern Europe, and the Sephardis and the Middle Eastern Jews, that they are close together. They grow and they grow and they grow. And they, there was no YouTube, there was no internet, there was no movies. And they grow, they grow, they grow, and they don't know each other. But they grow differently. But in America, they meet first the Ashkenazi Jews, go to America, and then Sephardi Jews arrive. And they look at their Ashkenazi counterpart and says, what, what kind of Jew is that? So even today in Israel, there is this Ashkenazi uh, Sephardi tension. And as I was saying before, in, in America, the Ashkenazis have defined Judaism. People in America, you tell the Jewish, they say, oh, yes, you say, oh, and you dress in black and white and black hats. No, Sephardi Jews don't do that. Middle Eastern Jews don't do that. This is all Ashkenazi. So they define in America, so they have maybe much more power. And I don't know what's happening in Mexico, but if there is difficulty, then it is, it is, it is very sad. And we have to just uh, learn to know who we are and, uh, and, uh, and, and live it. It's not on man to tell us who's who. And I think the burden of proof should shift Instead of, uh, if somebody comes to me and tells me, you're not a Jew, you don't have the right of return, I will ask them, you prove it to me. Prove your claim. But they want to put the burden of proof on us and everybody's there looking at DNA and parenting, parentage and all that stuff. But the burden of proof should be given to those who make the claim that we're not Jewish. You know, so that's really sad. you know, but I do believe that uh, that all these things are for a purpose, and I do believe that all these things will come to an end and uh, will will there will be a solution and but it's a process that has to work. Israel spent two thousand years in diaspora. And I think Israel has to rediscover itself. It's a little bit, a little bit when the children of Israel left Egypt, they have spent several, some hundred years, two, three, you know, out uh, uh, living in foreign countries. When they came to Mount Sinai, they needed to discover who they were again, what it was all about again. And, and uh, it, it was a learning process, even through the whole time of the days of the judges until King David and all that stuff. It's a learning process, and we're going through a learning process, and we've got to be patient with it. Very true. Do you know much about Jacob Lombroso, uh, your relative who ended up in Maryland? Uh, now they're saying that him and uh, Luis Carvajal de Cueva were the, the first Jews in America, and, and they're being brought like uh, Carvajal was the first Jew in, in Mexico, and then uh, Jacob Lombroso, who's another relative, ended up in Maryland. And, and there are the first Sephardic communities over there. I, I have heard about it, but to be honest, I don't know too, too much about it. 
you um, know, actually, 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 it's uh, for me. It's all uh, very uh, interesting uh, because I know the history from some of my family, and actually, we started discovering all that. Uh, we stumbled into it uh, when my wife, one time, she, you know, we have six children: five boys, one girl, and. I think you can relate if I say girls communicate, but boys don't always communicate with their parents. So uh, my wife was trying to see what my son, I have a son called Joseph Lombroso, what he was up to. And as she was trying to search online, we fell into this whole thing. It was a few years ago. So now we're, we're discovering more roots. And yes, we did hear about just uh, Jacob Lombroso, but, uh, I don't know too, too much about it. We ourselves in the process of uh, putting it all together. And what practical um, tools or uh, support do you have for, for Latinos who are of crypto Jewish background? Because we hear online as well on YouTube, a lot of very spiritual or prophetic or even, um, I don't know, conspiracy theories of how the, the crypto Jews are going to move to Israel and take, out, take back the Negev and do this and do that. But no one is talking about how can we teach them Judaism? How can we help them reconnect with their roots? How to grow as a Jew and have a consistent Jewish lifestyle so your children are raised Jewish, so you can have Jewish communities, so you can have uh, like a, a, a form of, of religious revival within the Latino community. So then we can be a force to be contending with as compared to always being on the back of the bus and feeling uh, unaccepted and feeling uh, mm-hmm. disconnected from the rest of the Jewish people. Well, here's what I have to say about that. Um, you deal with it the same way that you eat an elephant. By that I mean, I mean one spoonful at a time. Very often people get discouraged because they look at the big picture and they feel, oh, how do I do this? When actually the whole idea is to do little things, little things, you know. And some of the main things you can do, I believe personally as a Jew, is to not look at the whole thing. I got to do all that. No, 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 no. You know, I think make it part of your household, you know, a simple a simple, sometimes I feel, and forgive me if it's heretical, but I think sometimes I feel like the ultra-Orthodox have, have made things so complicated, have made Judaism so complicated that it's almost discouraging, especially if you're family, your father, your mother, and you have lots of children, and you work. And, and it, me, uh, you see, I'm not a professor, I'm a teacher. Professors take simple things, make them complicated. Teachers take complicated things and make them simple. The difference is in the paycheck. Teachers get small paychecks. You know, but so, so what I say to, to teach this to your children is, I would say, one, do have a regular small kiddush every Friday night. You know, uh, sometimes the laws of Shabbat that have been established can be very strong, can be very, very compelling. Maybe you feel you cannot do all, all of Shabbat. And the, the, the growing into doing Shabbat is something that takes time. But doing a Friday night Kiddush, simple. It's two prayers, a piece of bread, a glass of wine, washing hands. 
you know, and you can add a couple of songs. It's very simple. Actually, that's what I do in my house. You know, we have friends come over. We have, and, and one thing very important, one thing that I think, I think is very important, make it a deal. You know, bring that, that's the night. During the week, maybe you don't have the time to get together with your family to eat because you work and the sports and this and that, you know, lots of activities. But Friday night, things got to come to a stop. You, you, you bring the, the nicest tablecloth, the one, and use the same one, a white one preferably. Bring the proper plate, set the table properly for everybody. Bring the two candles. Have something to drink. Lower, lower the excitement in the house. Make it, and then have the father or whoever needs to do it do the kiddush prayer and make it simple, make it fun, make it interactive with the children. You know, there is a blessing to to do. There is a blessing for the children during the kiddush. Don't make it sanctimonious and go and pray. No, have the children come on your lap and give them a kiss and pray for them, give them a hug. You know, make it make it fun, make it nice, but make it regular and make it an event every Friday night. Also, get your children familiarized with. Hebrew, you know, and and try to do to do something for all the feasts. Rosh Hashanah is coming soon. Have these apples and honey and and the last questions and start with the little things. Fast on Yom Kippur if you can, you know. Do a sukkah for Sukkot. Learn that you can learn online how to make a sukkah and do a seder at Passover. You know, you do these things. You do them reg- regularly. You answer you answer simply, simple questions. You just bring the story of the Bible that goes with it, and 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 make it simple, you know, but regular, and make it fun, and so that the 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 children the 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 associated with the Torah doing those things is is fun. It's, it makes sense. It has historical background. And we're lucky to have those, you know. To me, that's a little too. But, you know, I know myself, we haven't always been very faithful, especially in early, a while ago. And there came a time in our lives when our children, uh, you know how it is with children. They grow up to be teenagers and all of a sudden they become strangers, especially in the world in which we live. And... Um, and uh, my wife and I, our lives maybe slowed down or maybe not, but we decided to, to, to pray for our children every Shabbat at the table. We actually, my father passed on a tradition to us from his father that when we break the challah on Shabbat and we give a piece to each person at the table, we also include our children who are not present. So we usually do each one of our children who are not at the table and their children and their, and their spouse and their children. You draw a piece of bread while we say their name. And we've been doing that regularly. And I can seriously trace our relationship with our children getting better and better and better and better. And also our children's situations getting better and better and better and better from the time that we started to do that, 
you know, Hashem, and you know, I heard a story one time uh, from an Israeli soldier. You know, it's like uh, his mother had come to um, to the general. His soldier was going to the army. Her son was going to the army, and she had come to to the general and to ask him for special, particular things concerning her son. Some things having to do with health. And the general answered her and said, look, uh, I know that God answers the prayers of Jewish mothers above those of generals. So I think we'll see what we can do about this. You know, and there is something very strong in praying for our children on Shabbat. If you'll allow me, I'll give you the principle for it, okay? Um, the principle of praying for our children, you know, we do, may, may you be like Ephraim and Manasseh, and we can add a little ad-lib prayer too, but this principle to me, it comes from the idea that, let's say, let's say, let's say, uh, I leave my son home for the weekend as a father, and I tell him, uh, during the weekend, while we're gone, I want you to do this and this and this and this chores, okay? I want you to mow the lawn, and uh, clean the garage. You come back at the end of the weekend. I come back at the end of the weekend. My son mowed the lawn, but also uh, uh, he did some woodworking. And not only did he clean the garage, but he reorganized all the tools. And on top of it, he cleaned all the bathroom. Here I see, I come back. My son did above and beyond what I asked him to do. And the next week, he does the same. I'm happy with my son. So when my son comes to me and says, Daddy, can I have $10 to go play with my friends this weekend? I say, yes, of course, here. Because my son is pleasing to me. Well, I think it's the same. When we come around the Shabbat table to honor and, to honor and remember the Sabbath, Hashem's happy. We're doing what he asks us to do. He's happy. And this is the time when he's happy with us that we can ask him for those things that really matter to us. And what matters to us more than our children? So I think that's a principle behind praying for our children at the Shabbat table. That's beautiful. Um, Last question. Um, How do you deal with backlash from your family uh, when you go on a different spiritual path than they do? Um, uh, some of us have it's, taken years to, to rebuild that relationship. Go ahead. It's been the same thing with me. One thing that I learned is that I, I identified Messiah. I was young. I was 17. And uh, I was not very wise in the way I approached my family about it. So it was difficult. I kind of got a bit ostracized from my family. But after that, I left and traveled all around the world. Then when I came to America, I think after 10, 20, 30 years, I think everybody chilled a little bit. I had children, so my father had grandchildren. Uh, I was wiser, hopefully. My father chilled, and, uh, and we met. And now we have, uh, my father and I, has, has, we have a beautiful connection. But here's what I think is really important, and I hope I'm not going to run out of electricity. Uh, I need to to uh, plug in my laptop. But uh, here's what I think is very, very, very important. Christians 
teach that when you recognize Yeshua, whom they call Jesus, as the Messiah of Israel, that you're supposed to leave Judaism and adopt a new religion called Christianity. A religion that automatically tells you to disobey Torah, tells you to not honor and remember the Sabbath, that you don't have to eat kosher, that you don't have to practice circumcision, and that the Old Testament is old hat. That's what they tell you to do. So, of course, as a parent, I see if I see my son uh, believes in a certain person, it's one thing. But if that person tells them to leave behind their Jewish culture and heritage, then I'm really mad. I'm really I'm disappointed. I'm upset. You know? And I think that's, that's one of the big problems. My father came to visit me at my house twice. He spent a month during the summer at my house. And he saw what we do. We eat kosher. We remember and honor the Sabbath. I took him to synagogue with me. And he saw me going up to read the Torah. And he saw me giving Torah classes to people. He knows what I believe perfectly. You know, but because he saw that I believe in what I believe as a Jew, he was comforted. You know, there is nothing more Jewish than believe in a Messiah. There's nothing more Jewish than believing in Yeshua, the Messiah. But it does not take us away from Judaism. Actually, it makes us a better Jew. And we have to remain within that Jewish culture of Shabbat, of Hebrew, of Passover, and, and Zionism, and Israel, and Abraham, and Moses. We have to to live within that culture. He, you know, he himself, Yeshua himself, he said, he said to some people to challenge him, he said, you read the scriptures and you do well. What scriptures was he talking about? He was talking the Tanakh. He says, you read the Tanakh and you do well, for this is what bears witness of me. There is no more, no better witness of Yeshua than the Tanakh. So we should study the Tanakh and not only study it, but observe it. You know, that's the witness of Yeshua himself. Again, to hear uh, uh, someone involved with the, with the Jewish Christian movement who is pro-Jewish, pro-Anusim, it's, it's, it's a lot to, to ask for because we have seen a lot of people diminish their Jewish identity because they want to look good with the Christian community or even attack the Jewish people to get their, their claims uh, established. And these are coming from Jewish people who now follow Jesus. So to hear someone who follows Jesus and loves Judaism and loves the Jewish people and sees himself as part of for the Jewish world, that's something that is very unique. And, and we thank you for sharing that experience with us. Well, I hope it was a, I made myself, <laughs> sometimes I stumble over my words, but I hope that it was understandable. And maybe in the future you can come and tell us some of your experiences doing outreach with the Anusim. Uh, have you been invited by Latino groups uh, throughout uh, America or the Americas to come and speak, or has it been a limited outreach so far? Well, it's kind of new. Uh, the one community in uh, Fort Worth, Texas, invited me. And I think it was uh, actually, yes, in Fort Worth, and there was another one in El Paso. 
that invited me. And that was quite interesting. Uh, today, actually, as I traveled, I, I passed around, uh, I passed by a community of, they call this in Sephardi. Uh, so in, uh, where was it? Where was I today? Sorry, I've been traveling for many days now. Uh, it was in Albuquerque. And uh, I was trying to communicate with them, but they were not uh, in this all. So, because I, I was getting a refer- referral from somebody, so. But uh, I'm very interested in getting more involved in communicating and, and uh, with the Anusim community. It seems that there is more in the south of North America than in the north of North America. And I'm from Portland, Oregon, so. Thank you for listening. We will be back next week with another episode of The Mystic and the Skeptic. Show descriptions and content are available online on our Facebook page. We would like to thank Radio Free Nashville for their technical guidance and assistance. The songs you hear on our introduction and finale are from the band The Ancient Gnostics. The first one is called Day by Day, produced by Hafki. The second one is called All Mine, and it's produced by Brotherhood. What I chose, it's what I own, it's my life Last time I checked and looked it up, it's all mine I know I ain't been here for a long time Doing better on my own now, it's my time It's what I chose, it's what I own, it's my life Last time I checked and looked it up, it's all mine I'm on line, I'm on track, I'm just fine I may find when I look back, it's all mine Unlock the force, telekinesis That Christ consciousness is always constant We are Jesus But we're born in a world torn into fragments and pieces More tragedy in this reality Imagine where peace is lost Now it's up to us, no risks and buts No matter the cost, cause we're the cause Free from the loss, set from above